Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I want you to know I was almost late because my eight-year-old whose birthday is today got to school and goes, where's my backpack? And I was like, I had this happen the other day with a (laughs) 15-year-old. Oh, great. So it gets better? (laughs) If it's off your couch by 30, you were an amazing mom. Oh, my gosh. Hey, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lago. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, Democratic Orange County Congressmember Katie Porter was elected in 2018 by flipping a Republican House seat to the Democrats. Now the self-described minivan-driving mom is in a tight race for the U.S. Senate. That's right. Porter, who's known for her blunt style and grilling of corporate CEOs and her consumer advocacy, joins us to talk about her life, the key differences between herself and fellow Democrats Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee, and how she plans to edge out Republican Steve Garvey and make it into the November runoff. Representative Porter, thank you for coming back on The Breakdown. Wonderful to talk with you. Well, we are really thrilled to have you here. Um, the last time we had you on the show is 2019, back in your congressional office. A few things have changed in the world since then. But we want to talk a little bit about your life. You were born and raised in Iowa. Um, your dad was a farmer and then became a loan officer. Tell us a little bit about sort of your childhood and, and growing up in Iowa. Well, growing up in Iowa, I think one of the things that you learn is how much politicians want to talk to you during campaign season. This is the early presidential state. And so I grew up with a lot of presidential candidates coming through, making promises. But then when Iowa and really the entire Midwest went through the farm crisis and people, including my family, had a really hard time those Washington politicians were nowhere to be found. And so I think when people say that they they don't feel like Washington remembers when they don't keep their promises, I, I think I experienced that as a kid. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm running to kind of shake up Washington um, and to do things a little bit differently is I think the skepticism that voters have about whether or not they can trust politicians. I mean, Donald Trump made that worse, but the problem was there long before Trump. And if we don't change what we do, how we campaign, how we fund our campaigns, that skepticism in our democracy is only going to grow. 
the farm crisis in the 80s, which really devastated a lot of farms, hit your your family. Your your father was a farmer really hard. What did you take from that? And, you know, how did it affect your family? And what do you think you have with you today that you learned back then? Well, it, it definitely became clear that um, the community where I had lived, the economy that had supported my family wasn't going to be there anymore. So when we talk about the transition, for example, from fossil fuels to clean energy, I have lived through that kind of transformation. Um, and I have heard Washington say, it'll be okay. But then on the ground, watched people lose their family farms. My mom um, started driving to, to a city to work. It was a, about an hour, 10 minutes each way um, to be able to support our family when the farm couldn't. So I think I experienced those things directly. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have parents who encouraged me um, to, to study hard, to, to be a good student, and that I would be able to go and find a career um, off the farm. Yeah. Okay. Before we get to your studies, because you went to some pretty impressive schools, um, your mom became famous for quilting. I got to have you talk about this. I, I assume this was a little after that long commute. But in all seriousness, you also like talk about watching her grow a successful business and how that influenced you. So tell us, how did she become pretty famous in the quilting world? Yeah, so when my when we were little, and I, I really relate to this as a mom. Um, my mom, I'm one of three siblings, um, and I have three kids. And my mom said she felt like everything she did didn't stay done. So she'd she'd unload the dishwasher, and five minutes later it would be full again. Um, and the laundry just continues. And so she took up quilting because when you make a quilt, when you put those stitches in, you've created something that that stays for generations. Um, so she started a small business. Um, she wrote um, the best selling, the still the best selling house to quilt book. Um, I was very involved in 4-H, um, showing pigs and cows, uh, but also, of course, quilting. And that's something we've actually um, talked about some in the Senate campaign and some of our advertising. Um, but really seeing her as a small business owner, uh, particularly as a woman running a small business, some of the challenges she faced in, in getting loans, um, it's really been an inspiration to me. And so when we talk about small business owners, I am the daughter of one. I have seen what that can mean to a family to have that kind of opportunity. You went to an elite boarding school in Massachusetts, which is a pretty far a long way from pigs and cows uh, in Iowa. How did you get there? How did you end up? There? I was... Yeah, I was part of a research project, actually, by professors um, who were studying gifted kids. And so they asked school districts to basically offer up some kids um, as research subjects, aka guinea pigs, um, to do research on us. On So as a part of that, there was a longitudinal kind of tracking study, and they sent us up about different opportunities, different programs we might apply to. Um, and so I had gone to a summer program as part of this gifted pro this research project at Iowa State University. And I wanted to go to another summer program. My school was very small um, and very underfunded. I mean, in sixth grade, and this was in 1986, my science textbook said maybe someday man will get to the moon. Wow. So <laughs> very small, underfunded rural school. I had about 14 kids, not in my class, in the entire grade. Um, and so I wrote to um, this school called Andover, um, wanting to go to their summer program. Um, but they sent me back the, the application to apply for the full year. Um, I did. I got a scholarship. Um, I was one of the only rural kids, um, farm kids there at the school. Um, and so, you know, I think that was an interesting example for me, an interesting moment in 
sort of people's perceptions about different parts of the country. And I think we as Californians, you know, people have a lot of ideas about Californians and they're not always accurate. And so I've, I've had some experience trying to debunk those myths um, coming from Iowa to the East Coast. Well, I mean, that must have, though, opened up opportunities for you that you clearly seized. You went on to go to undergrad at Yale um, and then Harvard for law school. Uh, and I think it was in those institutions that you really started getting gaining your interest in these questions of like bankruptcy and consumer advocacy. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what did spark your interest and how did you end up, I think, kind of crashing Elizabeth Warren's like 8 a.m. class, which you must have really wanted to do if it was at 8 in the morning. Morning, right? Yeah, so even in college, um, I started taking some classes that were about America's economy, about kind of who wins and who loses. Um, looking at, so for example, what happens when workers get laid off? What does that mean for them and their family? Um, how do they understand that? Who do they assign blame to? Do they blame themselves? Um, because after all, we're supposed to be a meritocracy. You're supposed to, quote, get what you deserve. But for American workers, there are huge international economic forces and ultra-wealthy people who are kind of pulling the strings of our economy. So it really started there. Um, but taking Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy class was amazing. Um, I had a very intentional strategy. Was um, She was known as a very fearsome professor. Um, very, very good, beloved, um, but tough on her students. And so my strategy was to sit in the front row so she could see that I was paying attention and she would not call on me. And that did not work. <laughs> uh, I definitely got called on just as much as everybody else. But you know, I think the, the core kind of issue that really has interested me economically is, look, we know that capitalism is really great at making a handful of people really, really rich. The question is, what do we do about the downside of capitalism, about some people who start businesses and they don't succeed, about some people who are never able to save enough from their jobs to be able to take advantage of, of the opportunities of capitalism? And so that's why when you see me now today, for example, working on housing affordability in California, one of the things I'm focused on is opening up homeownership to huge swaths of the California population, including our Latino community, um, immigrant community, who haven't had that opportunity. And they're not going to unless we write the rules of kind of homeownership a little bit differently than we have. Well, after Harvard Law, you went uh, back to Iowa. You were teaching bankruptcy. And then fast forwarding a little bit, you ended up at UC Irvine and you were teaching uh, at the law school there. And you somehow got onto the radar of Kamala Harris, who at that time was California's attorney general. And she put you in charge eventually of monitoring, overseeing uh, certain things related to the, the mortgage meltdown. Can you talk about working with her and what you learned from that? Yeah. So um, before I moved to Berkeley, uh, to UC Irvine, excuse me, for Irvine, I actually did a stint a year teaching at Berkeley. Um, so actually spent a year there living um, in Richmond and, and getting to see that part of the state. Um, I think I came to the attention of our now Vice President, um, then Attorney General Kamala Harris, because of research I had done showing that big banks who had not just put people into predatory mortgage loans, were also cheating them on the way out. And that received front page New York Times coverage. Um, this was within our lawful court system. People were being cheated. So the rules were really clear. If banks want to foreclose, they have to prove what they owe. They have to show that they have a mortgage. They have to show that they have a note. And 
What we learned was they couldn't do those things, and the law was siding with them again and again and again. So I think it was that track record of really digging into the data, um, of really not just making accusations, but really having the research to back that up. Um, and so what, what I was tasked with doing was the banks had made some very big promises to change what they were doing to stop these practices that were cheating Californians um, and to start helping them be able to save their homes. And I think Attorney General Harris, then Attorney General Harris, was really incredibly insightful to understand that it is very easy for these companies to make promises to get off the hook. Yeah. But because who will be on the ground holding their feet to the fire? Um, it's not going to be an individual homeowner who's calling a 1-800 number and stuck in some phone tree from hell. And so my job was really to make sure that banks did what they promised. And, and this was their this was their settlement. They made these promises to get off the hook. And my job was to make sure they followed through on every last one of them. And so that took me all over the state, um, doing workshops, getting to talk to people on military bases, um, in rural communities, um, and, and you know, black churches, and getting to talk to homeowners trying to educate them and, and hold those banks accountable. And I was very good at it, and I'm proud of it. All right. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Democratic Orange County Representative and U.S. Senate candidate Katie Porter. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfatah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we're talking with one of the top candidates for the U.S. Senate seat once held by Dianne Feinstein, Orange County Democrat Katie Porter. She's been a member of Congress since her election in 2018. And I believe uh, it was the Trump victory in 2016 that really sort of set you on the path to running. I'm curious. Um. You're a mom of three kids. They're now 18, 15, and 12, I believe. They were a little younger when you first ran. What was the hardest part of that initial sort of run and taking office? Was it the running or was it the winning? Because I know when you got to Congress, it was a a real challenge to sort of juggle your life all the way across the country um, in, in an institution where not a lot of people are in the same shoes as you. 
to be honest, on a personal yeah. level. Yeah, I mean, when I when I was in Congress, I was the only single mom um, of young kids. Um, and I was very, very, and still am, 100% committed. My life is in California. I am a Californian. And that is very much part of, of my identity and my kids. They go to public school here. And so I think that one of the biggest challenges was just, one, the lack of anyone having gone before me um, who could talk about how to do this. The answer I kept getting was, well, my husband does that, my, or more commonly let's face it, my wife does that. Um, and in fact, even people who were married would say, well, you should talk to my, they were a male Congress member and they would say, you should talk to my wife. She's like a single mom. Wow. And I was like, like that's she's not really helpful. not. <laughs> like, she's really not because you're here and she's there. And so um, I think that was a challenge. I think the other thing is, um, you know, the uncertainty, the chaos kind of of Congress, which I think the American people don't like. Um, they they want to know what we're working on and they want to see us work on it till we get done and then take up the next project. And so um, it was really challenging and I had a really competitive seat um, and so needed to be campaigning um, full on. And so I think um, that was a big challenge. But I, you know, I remember saying to someone like, we could be so much more effective if we weren't spending two days a week on airplanes, right? So we should come on a Sunday night and leave on a Friday afternoon and work five full days and then spend the next week in California talking to our constituents, touring nonprofits, meeting with, with people to understand their concerns. And and I said, this would work so much better for, for people with family responsibilities. And, and the House Democratic leader said, you know, Katie, your situation is just so unique and we just can't can't run the system around you. And of course I was one of 435, absolutely. But there are 9 million single parents. So it's just only in the halls of Congress that that was unique. And I think that was an important moment for me to be reminded of the gaps between kind of everyday Californians and who represents us in Congress. You, you said that you didn't find a lot of support as a single mom in the halls of Congress. And you say that older female colleagues, a lot of whom, of course, have gotten into politics when their kids were grown, were the least helpful of all. And you kind of you know, said a moment ago, the, the, the House leader said that you can't run the schedule around you, Katie. Was that the speaker, Pelosi, or the majority leader at the time? No, no, it was not. No, it was not. That was somebody else. Were you surprised, though, um, that I women will, weren't more, you know, empathetic? I, I think it just reflects the same problem, which is that they they have not had those experiences. So, you know, look, when, when women started to run, and I, I think about Senator Feinstein and the trail that she blazed um, to elect women. And, and, and so, you know, the what they did was create a path for those of us who followed. And those of us who followed um, have kind of widened that path, mm -hmm. making it possible for more different kinds of women to come in. So when I was elected in 2018, there were a lot of women elected. But what was really special was there were so many different kinds of women. We had the first Native American woman. We had the first lesbian mother. We had the first single mom of young kids, which was me. And so I think, you know, when we talk about sort of why it matters to elect women, it's because we bring different life experiences. And one of the experiences I bring is was really having to focus on childcare, the lack of affordable childcare, the importance of rewarding childcare workers so they can take care of their own kids. Yeah. But I think this does sort of speak to your... You kind of ran as an outsider. You've burnished that image in Congress. It's a big part of the Senate campaign. Um, and you've not been afraid to criticize your colleagues, even on your side of the aisle. 
I just am curious, like, what do you say to people who look at, say, you know, that reputation, but also the fact that you've only been endorsed by one Democratic member of the California delegation and say you don't play nice with others? How do you expect to get things done for for California if you don't have those relationships? So I am committed to making Washington work better for families, to, to work for California and not work for big corporate special interests. That's why when I ran, I made the decision not to take corporate PAC money. And there were a number of people from around the country um, and some in California, who, who a couple of us who made that decision. Um, but it really was um, clearly very upsetting to the status quo in Washington. I had no more than been, I think it was even maybe the day after I was sworn in or before I was sworn in. Um, I had a lobbyist tell me, oh, you're one of those, those no corporate PAC people will break you. You'll see, you won't be able to get elected without our money. And I think one of the things that I have shown is that grassroots fundraising, standing up to big corporations, this is what Californians want. And so was able to hang on to my seat, even as others around me lost. Um, and so I think that's really important. In terms of engaging with uh, my colleagues, I'm so proud to have been chosen um, by over 100 colleagues to be the number two in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And I think what that speaks to is my leadership, my forward thinking, uh, my ability to understand that progressive values like California has can win um, swing voters and can engage them. Um, and so, look, I haven't been in Washington for 25 or 30 years. And some of these people have served together for two or three decades. Right. They have long relationships and have gone back and forth endorsing each other. Um, and I'm a little different. I've only been there five years. Um, and I'm incredibly proud of the people whose support I've earned. Let's talk about your pledge not to take corporate PAC money. It's a promise that focuses on political action committees that are, you know, operated by a single corporation and a collection of donations from the company and its employees. Why does it matter whether politicians take money from those type of PACs? And why not go further? I mean, is there really a difference between taking it from a PAC and taking it from, say, the National Association of Realtors or the AMA? Look, I am the only candidate in this race who decided when they became an elected official. It's really part of who I am was not taking corporate PAC money. You know, I talked about my work fighting big banks and making sure consumers were treated fairly. Um, and I have gone further than that. I don't take money from federal lobbyists. And I'm the only candidate in this race who has done that. And I think it matters because it's reflected in the fights that I have taken on in Washington. When we think about the sort of back and forth I had um, that went viral with um, the Chase Bank CEO, Jamie Dimon, you know, my asking him kind of here's what it takes to live and here's what you pay your lowest paid workers. What should that worker do? She can't live on what you pay. There's a reason that no, that's not a hard question. Millions of Californians confront that question every week. I don't make enough to live on. What should I do? That was considered such an imaginary um, question. How did you come up with that? Um, when that's a question that everyday Californians are facing, why wouldn't people ask that in the past? I think because they don't want to make big corporations angry. Um, and I think we see in this race, you know, we have a handful of ultra wealthy billionaires um, spending dark money, super PAC money um, in this race to try to keep me out of Washington. Um, and so I think, you know, you can look at the track record of how I have voted um, and how Representative Schiff has voted. You know, the reality is, he took money from Big Pharma and he voted against allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, something that is very, very popular with Americans. Um, and I can point to the same things with big oil 
took money from big banks, um, and then voted against allowing the government to crack down on racial discrimination in auto lending, which is just terribly unjust and unfair and illegal. Can I ask you, though, like 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 Scott said, I mean, you obviously corporate PACs are one part of this. But, you know, I think like looking at your donations over the years, you have taken money from the realtors. What is the difference in your mind between an association, a trade association and say Remax, the realty, you know, company? Like, why should there be a difference? And doesn't that make you beholden in the same way to those institutions or, you know, those trade groups? So um, the realtors are a great example. They are small business owners. Um, Many of them operate independently. Um, They are out on their own um, trying to market to create that kind of research and to do that work. Um, And the realtor's mission is to expand homeownership opportunity. They have led the way on housing affordability. They're not big banks who are corporate landlords um, getting government backing. Can I push back though? Because in California, they've been really big players in a lot of fights that are not progressive at all. I mean, they, you know, when you look at rent control and a lot of other sort of issues that I know you care about. I mean, I guess it's it's and it's less about them specifically, but like, do you see a difference? Like, what's the difference between a corporate pack and just, you know, the the same type of companies supporting you individually or you know as as employees or individuals? Yeah, I mean, look, corporations enjoy lots of special legal privileges. I think that's the difference. They enjoy tax breaks. They enjoy subsidies. Um, they enjoy things that that organizations, people that come together. So, you know, I meet with, for example, the Association of Family Physicians. Some of them are in small offices. Some of them work for big corporations. Um, but I think the difference is we have seen in policy again and again and again at the federal level, rules that favor big oil, which has special rules for tax breaks, special subsidies um, to them, big pharma, to not let us negotiate drug prices. That is the most anti-capitalist um, thing that, uh, that hurts every single taxpayer um, who pays into Medicare. So, you know, there is way too much corporate power. I don't know that I would say on on the, the whole in Washington, there's too much trade associated. There's just a lot. Those come in lots of different flavors. Small corporations don't have PACs. It is the huge corporations that do, and they spend to the tune of billions and billions of dollars every year to influence Congress. Congresswoman, one of the issues that's really divided Democrats, both voters and the candidates, a bit is the is Israel and the war in Gaza. And one of the first things you said about this was uh, you were critical of the United States for not doing more to crack down on Iran and its uh, proxies like Hezbollah. Uh, and then you uh, kind of pivoted a little bit, talked about uh, the need for a, uh, you know, being mindful of uh, human rights violations in Gaza during the war. And I'm just wondering, you know, and it's, you know, continue to evolve a bit, move a little bit away from the Biden administration's position. You know, Barbara Lee, the day after the attack, called for a ceasefire. Now, people have been critical of that. But I'm wondering, in retrospect, do you think she was right? Um, I think that you can't just say the word ceasefire and make a conflict go away. The day after the beginning of the attack, we know that there were still terrorists in Israel. Um, I can't imagine us saying, oh, there are terrorists that we know about here in the United States. Um, Let's just let them continue in the name of peace. Peace is incredibly important. 
But we have to think about the parties to this conflict are Hamas and Israel. How do we get them to a ceasefire? It is very clear that that needs to happen rapidly, that the delay, um, that the path that they have been on is having tremendous and terrible humanitarian consequences. Um, what we saw with a, a convoy, an aid convoy, um, Yesterday was really horrific. So I think the situation on the ground in Gaza is deteriorating quickly. And I think it's important for the United States to stand up for our values, which are also, by the way, shared values with Israel. And we need to hold them to account for those shared values, which include democracy and human rights. I think you're seeing in Israel itself protests focusing on an end to the fighting, a return of the hostages, and a, and a better relationship um, with the Palestinian people. And so I I think that it's, it was inappropriate to, to try to um, call for peace just in the name of peace without looking at the situation on the ground in which Israel hadn't even secured its borders from Hamas terrorists at that at that point. But the, the cause of the ceasefire is absolutely right. And I've written about how I think we can get to a permanent ceasefire. And I think the United States needs to be forceful in saying to Israel, our alliance is based on a two-state solution. And that can't be an empty promise. That can't just be talking points that a politician recites. Um, it really has to be premised in Israel doing the work to deliver a free a free state um, for the Palestinians, both in the West Bank and in Gaza. All right, just a few minutes left. I got to ask you, polls have shown you kind of neck and neck with Republican Steve Garvey, a former baseball star, who really has struggled to articulate policy positions. Um, I just wonder, the prospect of finishing behind him must be pretty galling to you. Like, what's your pitch right now to people, you know, on the bubble here? Well, I mean, look, Steve Garvey is not communicating with Californians. Um, the ads that we're seeing about Steve Garvey are being run by Representative Schiff. Um, and that's just a fact. You can hear it at the end of every ad. Um, and I think what is going on here is an effort to elevate a Republican candidate who doesn't know what he believes, who has said he might vote for Joe Biden, who is, has said that he, he doesn't know what he thinks about the Second Amendment or gun rights or actually really pretty much anything, um, in an effort to end this election in March. And look, Californians are not well served by that. Um, and frankly, I would say Democrats are not well served by that. And I think that's the most important point. If we don't have a competitive election between two vibrant, strong Democratic candidates all the way through November, we will not have the turnout that we need in California to win back the House of Representatives, to win in key areas, to stand up to some kind of these hateful school board um, policies that we're seeing around forced outing and book banning. So I think what's discouraging here as a Democrat, as someone who's won tough races and really has a political vision for how we can do that, is that the efforts to lift Garvey are coming from Representative Schiff and are hurting the Democratic cause, um, both little D democracy and big D um, Democrats. All right. We have to leave it there. Representative Katie Porter, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. We're actually going to have Representative Adam Schiff on next week, and we had Barbara Lee on a few weeks ago, so check that out. For today, that is it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Brendan Willard. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.